The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Our text is in Romans 6.6. With this text, we come into the very heart of the doctrine that the death of Jesus Christ makes it possible for Christians to have victory over sin and to live lives of triumph. On several occasions, I've pointed out that there's a great difference between what we might call Christian experience and the experience of Christians. Christian experience is the doctrinal theoretical possibility, and the experience of Christians is what actually happens, and which falls far short, very frequently, of the possibility. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Victory Over Sin. It is impossible to commit suicide by crucifixion. This form of death must be inflicted upon a person by someone else. The Bible speaks of crucifying our old man, that the body of sin might be destroyed. But many Christians try to accomplish this by some form of spiritual self-crucifixion, which cannot be done. God is the one who must unite us with Jesus in His crucifixion death and in His resurrection unto life. Do you experience victory over sin through your union with Christ? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Victory Over Sin. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for all of thy goodness, and praise thee for thy faithfulness unto thy people. We ask that thy word may go forth in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, that our faith may not stand in the wisdom of men, but in thy power, O God. And we will give thee all the glory through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen. Our text is in Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. There are three things to be considered in the study of this text. We must define the old man and find out the implications of the statement that our old man is crucified with Christ. And we must see the meaning of destruction when we note that the purpose of our crucifixion with Christ is in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. The old man is the Bible term for the Adamic nature with which we were born. I would not have to spend much time in describing it, for we've all lived with it for so long that we should know exactly what it is. 
But it is a fact that our old man contains such a portion of deceit that many people are misled into believing that they are not too, too bad, and that possibly something could be done to improve them sufficiently to make them pass the standards which God might set up. But we've already seen that God has concluded all under sin, and that nothing which takes its source in our Adamic nature is acceptable to God. Perhaps it will suffice to quote in full the two other passages in the New Testament where our Adamic nature is described by this phrase, the old man. The first is in the epistle to the Ephesians, and the second in Colossians. The Ephesian passage describes what we were before we believed, and sets forth the evil qualities of that old nature, human nature. We read, This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord, that ye no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk, in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who, being past feeling, gave themselves up to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye did not so learn Christ, if so be that ye heard him and were taught in him, even as truth is in Jesus and that ye put away as concerning your former manner of life the old man that waxeth corrupt after the lusts of deceit, and that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now the parallel passage in the letter to the Colossians reads, Put to death therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry for which things sake cometh the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience, wherein ye also once walked when ye lived in these things. But now do ye also put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his doings, and have put on the new man that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him. The old man, therefore, according to these passages, is presented to us as a fountain spouting the bitter stream of all sinful things. There is in us, by our birth from the race of Adam, the stream whose waters can be nothing but poison. If we're at all honest with ourselves, we have only to examine our thinking to realize that this is all too true. Our literary artists of this century have created a style of writing that is known as the stream of consciousness writing. The result has been a rash of books filled with filth and obscenity. The mind is seen to be a cesspool, and when the bottom is dredged, there is nothing but that which is revoltingly foul and dirty. It is this old man which, in a Christian, is crucified with Christ. This is expressed very strongly in the original language, the Greek, for the verb is in the past tense and it has been so rendered in many translations. It will help us to see how this verse has been rendered in different versions. In the authorized version, we read, Our old man was crucified with him. Our old self has been crucified with him. It is in the Catholic translation. In Weymouth, we read, Our old self was nailed to the cross with him. And in another translation, Our old self has been jointly crucified with him. While the Phillips paraphrase renders it, let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross 
in order that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. Now, we have seen in a previous study that God looks upon us as having died with Christ. This fact is that which makes the newness of the Christian life possible. The edifice of victory is built there where the old building was demolished. We were crucified with Christ. It should be noted that we do not perform this act for ourselves, but that it is done for us by God in Christ. The following may illustrate the point. Several years ago, I read a chapter on the psychology of murder. The writer pointed out that a murderer had before him a thousand ways of committing his crime, but that it was the nature of his personality which established the choice of his method. When I read this thought, I began to think in terms of this present text. For the thought that struck me was that the number which the writer established as to methods of murder, a thousand ways to murder someone else, Undoubtedly, the writer was using the term in a literary sense and not a technical mathematical sense. He meant a great many ways. But I, for a moment, used it technically. My thought was the following. If, 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 if there are exactly, precisely 1,000 methods of committing murder, there are only 999 methods of committing suicide. For there is one method by which some man can kill another, by which he can never kill himself. A man can shoot another man and he can shoot himself. A man can drown another man and he can drown himself. A man can poison another man and he can poison himself. A man can throw another from a cliff and he can throw himself from the cliff. A man can run over another with an automobile and he can hurl himself in front of an oncoming car. And this list could be continued for the 999 methods of death which can be used for others or for self. But suddenly we come to death by crucifixion. And we realize the thought that though it is possible for man to crucify another man, no man can crucify himself. Crucifixion is a death that must be inflicted upon us. Now, when this is understood, the manner of the death of Christ becomes even more significant than before. We're told in several places that we have been put to death with Christ in order that we might rise to newness of life in him. There is only one way that we can make this practical in our own lives, and that is by taking this fact by faith. It is then that we can understand the power of the life of the resurrection that is available for us. But before we can proceed to see the reality of this new life, it is necessary to stop for a moment to consider a counterfeit which is all too prevalent in our churches today. Counterfeit crucifixion is practiced by thousands of Christians. There comes a time in the life of some believer when he realizes the presence of sin within him and he thinks that he has to do something about it. The first thing that comes to the mind of the old Adam is the thought that he must protect himself from the one method of destroying him which is valid and effective. So the old Adam whispers to the new man that there must be a great show of righteousness. There must be an outward manifestation of the hatred of sin. One can even become very, very proud of his hatred of sin and of his methods with dealing with it. And so the individual boldly attacks sin within his own heart. He begins to give up things. He begins to establish his own righteousness and to make a great show of the fact that certain carnalities are no longer with him. He has put off the most terrible and evident manifestations of sin. He does not murder. 
He does not go out and get drunk. He's not a great thief or a liar. Why, he even becomes religious. He joins a church. He's baptized and is very proud about it all. He becomes highly moral. He begins to give up certain habits and to replace them by better ones. He's what I call crucified in the feet, and he's very proud of it. His hands are still free to do whatever he wants to do, but he frequently uses them to point to his feet and to tell people how dead he is to things that are bad. And then there comes a time when the flesh can become even more proud of itself. It has learned in its head some of the truths about the walk of the true Christian life, and it begins to try even harder to put itself to death. Finally, it has become able to say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go to the theater, I don't gamble, I don't use makeup, and you can extend the list as long as your arm. And some of the people that say these things are some of the meanest and nastiest and most cantankerous people that ever live. And that's what I call crucifixion of the left hand. The Christian has come to the place where he's taken a nail and a hammer and has fastened the nail in his hand, and in the sight of everybody and with much ostentation, he has driven the blows into his hand, nailing it to the cross. But the cross is not the cross of Jesus Christ. And this person is not crucified with Christ at all. In fact, he is the enemy of the true cross of Christ. For his right hand is still free to point to his feet in his left hand to tell everybody how good he is. And he's so proud of all that he has done. But all of these actions do not constitute crucifixion with Christ. They are an imitation. They are a bastard holiness, which is not the child of the Holy Spirit, but which is the offspring of the efforts of the flesh. For there is no power left to the flesh to operate upon that right hand which is free. And thus the individual has the appearance, when looked at from one side, of being crucified with Christ, when in reality he has merely staged a fleshly imitation. Instead of crucifixion death, his pride has become fattened and he is in a worse condition spiritually than he was before. In the sight of God, he's undoubtedly worse, though he may look better from one angle. The works which he has done, as God tells us in Colossians, have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. And the Bible says this does not really honor God but only satisfies the flesh. For the fleshly nature of man, the old man, can be just as proud of being humble as the fleshly nature in an unsaved man can be a proud of the amount of liquor it can hold or of the amount of money it has stolen. The old man can be proud of goodness, proud of preaching, proud of clean living, proud of anything, good or bad. The real crucifixion of our old man can be done to us only by the Lord himself. He is ready to perform that work for us if we're willing to yield ourselves to him for that divine operation. But our text states that positionally the death has already taken place. In fact, it is of this past work of Christ that the text is speaking. The fact of the divine operation as having taken place is the phase of the work which is in prominence here. Now the practical aspects will come later in another study and will be seen to be nothing more than the application of the principles which are involved in the work that Christ performed for us. Now our text now continues with the statement that the purpose of our joint crucifixion with Christ by God 
was in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. And again, we look through the various translations and versions and we discover new light by seeing the different scholars have rendered this passage in different ways. Our union with Christ in his death was in order that the body of sin, which is our old man, might be destroyed. We read in the King James and the Revised Standard and in the Confraternity Versions. The revision of 19.1 puts it that the body of sin might be done away. Williams says the purpose was to make our body that is likely to sin inactive. Weymouth translates it that our sinful nature might be neutralized. Verkeuil puts it that the sin-controlled body might be devitalized. Phillips has it that the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. Now, these are some of the translations, and if you look at them carefully, they contradict each other. In fact, some of them lead to positive error. For it is a bad thing to convey the impression either that the old man has departed from us or that he remains with us, but he no longer acts according to the nature of his being. We've seen that these two false ideas are dealt with in John's first epistle. Sometimes you meet a man who says, I thank God I've come to the place where I don't sin anymore. I always say, ask his wife. The Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And that negates the translation, which would lead us to think that the body of sin had been done away. Now, in the second verse from this, John continues, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And that does away with the idea that the old man can still remain within us and be inactive, neutralized, or devitalized. The difficulty arises from the fact that the Greek word, like many words in our own language, has various shades of meaning. The one that is to be used here must be determined by all of the usages of the word in other places and by the entire body of New Testament doctrine on the subject of our sinful nature. It is a vicious method of Bible study whichever adopts a translation or an interpretation that will make a doubtful passage contradict the well-known body of truth which teaches something opposite. Now, the Bible does not contradict itself. And one of the simplest rules for Bible knowledge is for the student to know that he does not have the right answer to a problem if it creates other problems which are self-contradictory. The Greek word that is used here, katargeo, is found 27 times in the New Testament. Some of the verses are so well known that their citation will bring great light on the subject before us. Now, this is the fourth time that this Greek verb has been used in the epistle to the Romans. In Romans 3.3, speaking of the apostasy of God's ancient people, Paul says, shall their unbelief make the word of God without effect? Now, it's certain that the word could never have been translated destroyed in this passage because unbelief will never destroy the word of God, which will outlast heaven and earth. And in the last verse of that same chapter, Paul having presented the magnificent case for the doctrine of grace, asks the question, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yes, we establish the law. And again, you see, it would have been absurd to write, do we destroy the law? Because of course, the law is eternal. It could never be destroyed. And again, in the fourth chapter, the word is used at the point when it is set forth that the promise of God to Abraham was not through law, but through faith. And in chapter four and verse 14, we read, for if they which are of the law be heirs, the promise is made of none effect. So we realize that a promise of God could not be destroyed. And if you put in the English word destroy at this point, after having twice used the phrase to make without effect, 
and wants to make void is not consistent. And in the remaining portion of this epistle, the word will be found twice more. In the seventh chapter, we read that when a man dies, his widow is loosed from the law of her husband. It would be impossible to say that she was destroyed from the law of her husband. And when this same principle of freedom of a spouse through the death of a partner is applied to our relation to the law, we read, now we are delivered from the law. And again, you see, it would have been impossible to use the word destroy in translating it. When we go outside the epistle to the Romans, we find many similar usages of the word. Paul tells the Corinthians that when he became a man, he put away childish things. And in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that God has chosen the weak things and the base things and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. Now here, the translators used four words to render one Greek word. The fact that they had to say to bring to naught shows that they knew there was a deep meaning in this verse which goes beyond a single English word. Now, only once in the New Testament was this word used outside of Paul's epistles. The Lord Jesus used it in one of his parables. In Luke 13, 7, that of the husbandman who found no fruit on a vine and said to the gardener, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Why do you let it take up space? We would say, why do you give it ground room? Now, it is this meaning in the word, the combination of all that I have shown, which has brought the great lexicographer Thayer set forth as the first definition of the word to render idle, unemployed, inactive, inoperative, to deprive of its strength, to make barren, to cause a person or a thing to have no further efficiency, to deprive of force, influence, or power, to bring to naught, to make of none effect. Now this, of course, is the thought that is being presented in our text. And this will set forth the meaning of Paul's final usage of the word, the only usage in the epistle to the Hebrews. Christ died, he says, in order that through his death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now we have only to look around us to know that Satan still exists. As they once said to Moody, there is no devil. And he said, well, who runs his business? No, the devil has not been destroyed in the sense of being non-existent or in the sense of having become inoperative. But the work of Christ has established the principles whereby Satan can be overcome day by day through the triumph that is ours in Christ. And this is the sense in which the word must be used in our text in Romans 6 when applied to our devilish old nature. For I have an old nature, it certainly exists, even as the devil exists in the world today. I have an old nature, and it is certainly active, even as the devil is active in the world today. But the principles for victory, for overcoming it, exist, even as they exist for our overcoming of Satan himself. God has not left us without power. And in his sight, the enemy whether the enemy without or the enemy within us has been put in a position of powerlessness if we avail ourselves of that which God has given us. An American soldier on Guadalcanal might have stood unarmed before a Japanese soldier with a rifle aimed at him. That was our position before Christ died for us. Our old man had the power and we were the prisoner. The gun was pointed at us. But when Christ died, it was as though the rifle were knocked 
plucked from the hands of our captor and put in our hands. And now he must stand with his hands raised and we have the rifle to point at him. He will try to tell us that our rifle is not loaded. He'll try to tell us that the bayonet is not made of steel and that it's really nothing but an imitation. He'll try to tell us to lay it aside and to fight him with his own jujitsu, at which he is master. But if we realize that the weapon of triumph has been put into our hands and that our captor has become our prisoner, then we can know the force and power that will enable us to have practical victory over sin. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall bless the truth to each listening heart. If there should be those who have not been born again, give them restlessness, that they may know no peace till they rest in Christ. But upon all thy believing own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And a new sense of the power that is ours in the cross of Christ. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now, till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. Our old, sinful, Adamic nature can never be cured, tamed, polished, or cleaned up. We must deal with it by going to the cross and allowing the Lord to crucify our old man with Jesus Christ. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Victory Over Sin. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Victory Over Sin, or simply request message number R6-22. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, This Man and This Woman. The value of marriage and the family is rapidly declining in our culture. The resulting epidemic of divorce and broken families has infested our society and even the church. This free booklet underscores the sanctity of marriage and its vital role in the church and in society. You will understand the true meaning and significance of Christian marriage and find biblical answers to questions about mixed marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Ask for your free copy of This Man and This Woman when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.